Our sermon lesson this morning continues our sermon series called Self Wars, uh, which has been a study of the book of James. This morning, we are back in James chapter 2. We're going to begin reading at verse 14. James chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is a God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see, that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in different directions? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of our God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, may these words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The uh, place was South Florida, and the year was 1996, and third grade Matt, the third grade version of me, could not be any more excited for our family vacation. I mean, I was excited for all of the right reasons, all of the usual reasons, but there was one reason in particular that I was very, very excited for this family vacation. My mom and dad just told me that I could bring along the Intex Explorer 200 Pro on our family vacation. And for those of you who do not know, this is what the Intex Explorer 200 Pro is. It is a blow-up boat. I just gotten it for my birthday, and I still remember getting to the campsite, getting all set up, and then helping my dad or watching my dad blow it up. I remember getting to the pool and just loving how I could sit in there, and with two oars, I could move about the whole thing. I remember giving turns to my brothers and sisters, and then I think I remember having a timeout too for maybe complaining that my sister's turn was too long. But I'll never forget what happened when I got back from the pool. 
my brother, and I thought it was time that we were going to take the Intex Explorer 200 Pro outside the confines of just a little pool, and there was a creek nearby, and I'm sure that it was just a little creek, but because of some recent rains and because the Explorer, the proud owner of the Intex Explorer 200 was just in third grade, this looked like a raging river that needed to be explored. So my brother and I got into the Intex Explorer 200 Pro and we started down this. And I, I, I do not forget how fast we were going. We were, we were whizzing by rocks. We were whizzing by trees. I will not forget the sound that my boat made when it brushed up against a rock and popped right on my brother and I. I will not forget the feeling of our bottoms hitting the bottom of this creek as this deflated boat just sunk. I won't forget, yeah, bummer. I won't forget taking the deflated boat to my dad and watching him throw it away in the dumpster because the hole was just beyond repair. Yeah, I was in third grade, and maybe you could say, oh, you should have you should have known better, and, and you're right. But, I mean, it was there. This is page three of the owner's manual of the Intex Explorer 200. It says it right there. This is not for white water rafting or any other extreme sports activities. The fine print said it. And I think if I would have read that, I'd still be exploring with my Intex Explorer 200 today, but I'm not. Uh, have you ever been there? Fine print, not reading it. Um, maybe you buy something from the store, a food product, and you just didn't read all the ingredients that were in it. Maybe you grab something from the fridge and you just didn't read the fine print, the expiration date, and you got a little sour taste in your mouth. Maybe it's booking a hotel or booking a flight and you thought you were getting certain amenities, but you weren't because you didn't read the fine print. Or maybe maybe it's another product, a tech product. You saw the advertisements, you read the advertisements, and you thought it was going to change your life, but well, then you read the fine print, and it's not really going to do what it looked like it could do in the commercials. I think we've all had our bubbles burst, or maybe our boats burst, uh, because we failed to read the fine print. But I wonder, I wonder if, if that happens to our Christian lives. I wonder if we become discouraged, maybe disappointed, or even disillusioned with our faith lives, our Christian lives, and this for no other reason, we failed to read the fine print. We failed to read all of what God has written about a matter. We're back in our study of James. We're here in week three of our sermon series, Self Wars. In week one, we looked at the war of our thoughts towards others. Last week, Sean preached a sermon to us about the war that rages inside of us and and specifically attacks our tongue. And this week, we're going to look at the war that rages inside of us when it comes to our actions, when it comes to our faith and our actions, and, and showing both of them in our lives as Christians. And I wonder if because of our failure to read really everything that God's word says about faith and actions, we as Christians have been discouraged, maybe disappointed with our own understanding of what this Christian life is supposed to be like, maybe disappointed in other Christians and and what they do in their lives. 
So we're going to look at that. We're going to read the fine print. And we're also going to look at two things. We're going to look at the problem with works. And we're also going to look at the parts, very briefly, the parts with works as we study James. We're in today because we're going to be filling in blanks today. And we're going to be filling in more blanks than we ever have before. So I want to invite you to be opened, be, uh, be ready, follow along. James chapter 2. We began at verse 14 where James write, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister without clothes and daily food comes to you. If one of you says, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about the physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. James asks a pretty important question. He says, is it possible to claim Christianity, you not carry out what Christ says? And then he introduces an argument. Someone says, I have faith. All right. Someone else says, I have deeds. Okay. But is it possible to have one without the other? Is it possible to stand up in church and say, I believe in God the Father, I believe in God the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And yet go home and sit down and not do anything about the poor in our lives. Go home and discriminate against people who are very different than we are. Is it possible to come to church, to to stand up and label yourself as a Christian, but then go home and show zero respect to your parents, bully your younger siblings? Does faith work that way? Is it possible to, to come to church and then, and then go home and talk all about theology and God things with your family and friends, but then talk trash and talk smack? about people at work, about people at school you don't really like? Is it possible to smoke things you know you shouldn't, to drink too much, and then stand up, roll into church the next morning and say, hey, the Lord's with me? Is that how the Christian faith works? Is it possible to do those things, to, to sin that way, to do those actions, And still say, the Lord's with me. I have a faith that saves. It's a good question. It's a heavy question. Especially when we sit back and we go, yeah, I've I've done those things. I've said those things. I've thought those things. That's been my attitude. And we're concerned because I also thought I had a faith. And we've been saying it throughout our study of James. It's, it's real faith that produces real works. And so do I have a real faith? Well, if you're wondering, I'm glad you're here. Because James has something to say about that. But James does make one point unmistakably clear. In answer to his questions, he says no. He says if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can a faith save them? He says in 17, in the same way faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. 
A person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. As the body is without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. I like how I heard one pastor put it. James' main point in this section is this, is that a workless faith is a worthless faith. It's no faith at all. A workless faith is a worthless faith. If you think that James is saying anything different than what all of Scripture says, look again, James is only repeating what his half-brother, his older brother, Jesus, said in his Sermon on the Mount. Recall Jesus' words. He said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in their fire. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. I want to play a little little game show that kind of illustrates what James and Jesus are talking about. It's called Dead or Alive, all right? You're going to see some pictures of some things I think you might recognize, maybe from your own backyard. And I want you to just shout in church, either dead or alive, okay? All right, here's the first one. Ready? Perfect. Good. Next one. One more. Two more. Alive. Good. Good. 100% so far. Last one. Ah, give yourself a round of applause. That was great. You nailed it. And, and how'd you do it? I mean, I didn't see any of you go out and start taking soil samples or, or rip bark off trees and test it. How'd you know? I mean, it's obvious, right? You look at something, you look at a tree, and a tree that is alive produces something. It does something. It has to. There's no other way. A tree that is living will produce fruit. It will produce flowers. It will produce green leaves because that's what trees do. A tree that's alive. But a tree that's dead can't do it. It's impossible to do it. And what Jesus and what James are saying is that a Christian, a Christian that does not produce fruit that matches what a Christian is, it's not a Christian at all. So what's the problem, right? I mean, it seems pretty self-evident, right? James is pretty clear on this point. He says a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Shouldn't be any issues here, right? Let me introduce you to another pastor. Pastor James said this, but Pastor Paul, speaking to a group of Christians in Rome, he said this, He said a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now we got a problem. Which is it? The Bible says both are true. Both of these are in the Bible. Saved by works. Saved by faith. So which is it and who's right? Houston, we have a problem. And I I would go so far as to say that a misunderstanding of these passages right here, of what Pastor James and Pastor Paul are saying, accounts for perhaps most of the differences, most of the disagreements that you see between churches and church bodies. I'd go so far as to say that most of the discouragement, the disappointment, 
the disillusionment that Christian individuals have with their faith is because they don't get what Paul and what James are saying right here. But we're going to look at this. We're going to look at the fine print of what both of these men are saying. And to help us understand, I actually need some volunteers this morning. I need four volunteers. So can I get, can I get four people to come down here and help me out? I need, I need four brave individuals. Mike, thank you. One. Lisa, two. You guys can volunteer as well. All right. All right. Three. I need one more. How about from this half of the room? Can I get someone from over here? All right. Come on down, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you. Mike, why don't you stand right here? And Lisa, why don't you stand over here? Harley, come on over here. You're going to stand right here. Jonathan, I'm going to have you stand right here, okay? Yeah, right in the middle, right here, all right? And actually, I'm going to ask that you're going to be Paul for us, okay? I want you to hold this. That's the sword of the Spirit. That's the Word of God. And this is your shield. That's the Word of God, too. You're going to be Paul, all right? And you're going to be James. You got the sword of the Spirit, and you got the Word as well. I want you to fight each other. Because after all, this is a war of words and we got to figure out who's winning this. And in the middle, we have the cross. We have the glory of Christ, okay? Don't do anything yet. Just stand and face each other, okay? Just stand and face each other. And let's talk through this. Let's work through this, okay? Just stand patiently, okay? We're vying for the Lord. We're vying for the word of God here. And let's figure out which one's right. If you got your worship guides open, this is where the blanks are going to come fast, all right? We're going to take a look at this and we're going to start with Paul. Paul, Pastor Paul, who is writing to a group of Christians who lived in Rome. He's writing to an audience of people who were brand new Christians. They were people who had never heard about what Jesus had done for them before. And all of a sudden, they heard the good news of the gospel that God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't die, but will have eternal life. Now, this group of Christians in Rome that Pastor Paul was writing to, they they were experiencing freedom. This wasn't the time of persecution of Christians. That's coming up in a couple years. This is the Pax Romana. This is peace in Rome, where they could exercise their religion and live in religious freedom however they wanted to. And so they heard the message of the gospel. They thought that sounded good. And they say, I'm going to do some of that. I'm going to do some works so God gives me that love, so God gives me that forgiveness, so that God gives me that forgiveness. And this, Lisa, you're going to be the Romans for us, is what they look like. Happy people who are working hard. You got the headband on, little sweat coming down. You might say that the people in Rome, they were, they were doers. They were overachievers. They were eager beavers when it came to Christianity. And Paul said, your faith has a problem. I mean, you guys get it. You get that Jesus is good, but you're missing something. You're not getting this. That Jesus did it. You don't have to. What he said is, I see your faith. It's a selfish faith. It's a selfish faith that thinks that this is about you. That your works are getting you to heaven. It's a but flip the mask. It's a suffering faith. It's a suffering faith because I know that on the outside you might look happy, but you know you can't ever do enough. You can't ever be enough to know for sure that God loves you. And so 
Pastor Paul had a message for him. He said, stop working to earn your faith. He said in his letter to Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He said to him, stop working because the wages of your sins is death. And they said, so how can I be saved? And then he came at him with this verse. Pastor Paul told them, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, powerless to do any works, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He said, stop working because Jesus' gracious work, God's grace, seen on the cross of Christ, that is what has paid for your salvation. When Jesus said, die," when he said, it's finished, he meant it's done. If I summed it up in one word, it's about this. It's about your conversion. That's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a time before you became a Christian, a time before conversion where you were dead in your sin, where you were powerless to do any good works. And so he's talking about a one-time event. He's talking about your conversion. And what Paul is doing, he's not fighting James, 180. He's fighting against selfish Christians that want to steal the glory from God. They want to steal the glory from the cross and take it for themselves by doing things, by doing work. Paul's defending Christ's cross from people with selfish faith. Now, how about James? James, Pastor James, is writing to a group of people too, but it's very, very different than the people that were in Rome. He's writing a letter to good little Jewish boys and girls that had been doing things their whole life. That had always been keeping the law as best as they could. And then they heard the gospel. They heard that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And they said, oh that is good news indeed. Because now I don't have to do anything. I just have to believe. And what made it worse is that these people who are sleeping on their faith, who are just snoozing, being spiritual couch potatoes, were also being persecuted. People who didn't like Christianity were trying to shut them up, and they said, yeah, if I don't have to do anything, I just won't. And so these people, they weren't doers, they were donters. And don't look that up, because it's not a word, I made it up. But they were donters. They didn't just have sluggish faiths. This is where it gets even bad. Flip the mask. They had demonic faiths. And this is where James gets blunt. He says, all right, you think God's good? You know he's good and you're just going to settle on knowing that? He said, good. You believe there is one God? Good for you. Even the demons believe that. He said, your, your demon faith? Watch out. It, it's, it's a damning faith. Because he made it clear. We looked at it before. James says it. You see, a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. If I can sum it up in just one word, James, he's not talking about conversion. He's talking about life. So he says, start working now to show your faith. Start working now to show your faith because it is your grateful works. Your works are of thanks for all that God has done, which shows, which shows you have salvation. See, in the discussion on deeds, 
the discussion of deeds, it is not faith alone. It's faith and works. But in the conversation on conversion, it's just faith. It's just faith and it's all by itself. But when it comes to our life, our life of the Christian faith, it is faith. It's faith that we live by and do things by. That is what James is talking about. And James isn't fighting Paul. He's fighting against people that have demonic faith. See, these are two brothers back to back. They're not facing fighting each other. They're facing back and back. And both of them are defending the same thing. The glory, the honor, the cross of Christ. They're just having two different conversations. They're just fighting against two different enemies. Does that make sense? Let's give our volunteers a round of applause. Thank you guys for coming up here. You guys can just drop that stuff. Yeah. Thank you, men. (laughs) Martin Luther said this. He said that you are saved, we are saved by faith alone. But faith, saving faith, it's never alone. I think about that. I think about that as we look at the fine print of both what James and Paul are talking about. These men aren't contradicting each other. They're not fighting against each other, but they're kins another. They're saying the same thing. They're having two different conversations, but they both would agree with Martin Luther. We are saved by faith alone. That's the only thing that matters. And yet faith, saving faith, it can't be. It's never alone. A living tree is never not producing. A Christian that has faith is never not producing deeds. And so as you sat back and thought about it, which person are you? Are you someone that at times has a sluggish, even a demonic faith? Or are you a a doer? Are you someone sweating it out for God? Are you someone who's who's really having fun doing things, but inwardly you wonder if it's ever enough? Which are you? Can I be James for a second? Can I be blunt like James, that is? Because there's some of you here that your faith concerns me. Your faith concerns me as your pastor because I see you doing things. I see you serving at this church. I see you serving at home. I see you serving in your life. And like, you're doing it all wrong. You're doing it wrong because while you're smiling on the outside, I know, I know you must be suffering ever wondering if you're doing enough. If your parenting is ever, ever giving praise enough. If your service at church is ever serving God enough. You know what I want to do to you? I want to take Paul's sword and I want to give you a spiritual slap with it. I want to give you a spiritual slap with that sword and say, stop it. Stop working to earn your faith. And at the very same time, I want to give you a spiritual hug. I want to tell you, you can stop because Jesus' gracious work on the cross, it paid for your salvation. It's as good as done. There's no extra effort needed. But I can't say that to all of you. Because there is some of you whose faith really worries me. 
it really worries me because you think you have faith. I mean, you show up here sometimes, but then sometimes you don't. Sometimes you think, you know, I don't need to worship God where he is, even though the fine print says, yes, you need to be in the house of God. You need to rejoice with those who say to me, come to the house of the Lord. I'll just worship from you, St. Mattress. There's some of you who think because you know the truth, you can speak it to people without love. You think because you've received from God, you can keep it and be greedy and not give. And your faith worries me because you think you're secure just by knowing it, but your faith's no different from a demon's. It's not faith. It's a damning faith. It's a cold head knowledge that will land you in the fires of hell. It's not a heart knowledge. It's not a heart knowledge that moves your feet for the Lord. But that's some of you. It's not all. And in fact, I don't think the majority of people here are doers. And I don't think the majority of people here today are donters either. Yeah, I think the majority of people here are doubters. Doubters. And if Pastor Matt was was speaking to to an audience or writing a letter to an audience of people, I'd say it's doubters. It's people who know what the Romans knew, the Christians at Rome. It's people who knew what James's congregation knew. It's people that knew that Jesus' life means you have eternal life. His sacrifice means you have salvation. His, his innocent death means you will never die. And because he rose, you know you too will rise. But you doubt. And there's a problem with your faith. It's a struggling faith. It's a struggling faith because you're people who who know what Christ says about marriage and and you want to be Christ to your spouse in service and submission. You want to be like God the Father to your kids and, and show unconditional love and patience and forgiveness. And yet stress happens and you snap. And so you wonder, if I'm struggling so hard, is my faith real? You're people who, who, who want to grow and know more. You want to be more when it comes to God's word. You want to go deeper. You want your life to be affected more and more by the grace of God, and yet something in life always comes up. And so you can't, or you don't. You don't grow in God's grace as much as you wanted to, and, and, and you struggle with this, and it makes you doubt if your faith is real. There's some of you who sin. We all sin. But for some of you, it's a struggle. Because it's the same sin. It's the same sin over and over and over again. And you come to church and you pray about it. You repent about it. And you say you're sorry. You say you're sorry to those you love. And you keep doing it. But then you do it again. And it feels like a kick in the stomach. You feel sick about it. It makes you doubt if you're even actually struggling at all or if you're just sinning because that's who you are. You're a sinner. 
There's some of you here. In fact, I think there's many of you here who listen to sermons, who, who listen to God's word read, who go home and read more of God's word on your own. And yet more and more you doubt your faith because you see the picture of what Christians are supposed to look like. And yet you see yourself and you're, and you're not even close. If that's you, this might sound odd, but you're in a good place. Because there was a pastor. There's a pastor who, who actually had the same struggle. His name's Paul. And, and can I read you something that he wrote? Pastor Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, he wrote this. We'll get to this in a second. Pastor Paul said this. He says, I do not do the good I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law that is in work at me, waging war against the law of my mind. Paul, get the self-war. There's a war going on inside of himself. And this is what he said. He said, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of lies that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on in chapter 8 and he says, those who are in the realm of the flesh, cannot please God. But you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. Listen, if if I had a message for you, it would be don't worry about your faith. Don't be concerned about your faith. And here's why. It is because Paul tells us you are made a child of God. You are able to do what is pleasing to God because this is what he said, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies that our spirit, with our spirit, that we are children of God. Now if we are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God's and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul says, don't worry about your faith. Don't worry about the struggle because the spirit of God that is at work in you makes you co-heirs, co-heirs with Christ, co-heirs with his glory. And it's not just Paul. James says it as well. He says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, under struggles. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love them. Pastor James talks about the struggle in verse 1. He says the struggle is real, but don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. It sounds a little backwards. That a struggling faith would actually be just that. It would be a saving faith. A faith that makes you whole. A faith that makes you right with God. But don't you see that's exactly what it is. 
Because it is that the Spirit that is at work in you that moves you to do good works. There would be no struggle if you were dead. But precisely because there is a struggle, it shows that you are alive. It shows that you have been planted in Christ. That through your baptism, you have been watered by the Spirit. And He who is in you through your baptism continues throughout your life to help you in this war against yourself. He is the one that makes possible all of your works. And more than just possible, he makes your works pleasing and he makes your works perfect to God because they have been washed in the blood of Christ. That would be my message to you. Stop worrying about your faith because your works are just that. They are pleasing. They are perfect to our God because of Christ's work. Christ with you, the Lord with you, is what changes everything. You say, yeah, I still doubt. And and pastor, you're not with me Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday. How do you know that my works, my works are good works? What makes a good work good? Well, as we wrap up real quick, I want to I wanna share with you what makes a good work good. And I want to do it using the acronym WORK. I also want to do it showing you some fine print. Some fine, fine print from James, uh, John, rather, chapter 15, where our Savior Jesus is talking. He says that a good work is good when it is done according to the word of God. There he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. Every time you as a Christian person hear the word of God and do something that God commands every single time, that is a good work. A good work that shows fruit. A good work that is beautiful and pleasing to our God. Oh, every time that you do a work for others, this is a good work for God. Our God says in in John chapter 15, he says, this is my command, that you love each other, that you serve each other. Are the works done for others are not done for selfish gain. The works done are reflecting thanks to God. In John chapter 15, we read that Christ said this, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. It's work done for others. It's work done according to God's word. And this is perhaps the biggest one of all. It is done out of thanks, reflecting the love that God has for us. And finally, it's this. It's works done knowing that God is with you. Our God is is the one who is with you, who makes all of these works possible. He said this, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. I chose you and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. As you think about your your Christian life, as you think about the works that you do and how it might not be as ripe as you want it to be, how it might not be as, as pleasing as you want it to be, know this. Know that it is the Lord who is with you. The Lord who has chosen you, who has appointed you, who has made you grafted into him so that you can do good works, 
good works that are pleasing to him. And at the end of the day, when you are tired, when you are worn out from the struggle, from working, know that you have a God who says, come to me, all of you who are burdened and weary, and I will give you rest. Rest for this life and rest for your life to come. Amen.